So life is busy and cluttered. There's more information, there's more tasks, there's more emails, there's more stuff to do every single day. And we don't need more of that. What we need is more space. Space to think, space to plan, space to breathe. Now, you may have heard that before. Um, I'm a bivocational minister. I work part-time as a minister and part-time uh, as uh, a business person running training and consulting for leaders and management in helping them make space and be productive. Uh, and I use this water analogy quite a lot with leaders and managers in the business world. Um, and it connects with the reality of what people are experiencing in their day-to-day -day life, a, a glass that is just overflowing more and more and more. So if this glass represents our time, uh, if it represents our energy and our capacity to get things done, then um, it's limited, it's finite. You can only put so much in the glass before the water starts to overflow and just overflow and overflow. Um, and we have to choose what we leave in, we have to choose what we leave out. Uh, and, and if the glass represents our capacity, our energy, our time, uh, then the water glass represents our reality. It represents uh, our capacity to do stuff every day, the tasks, the the volunteering, the, the, the board games, <laughs> all the activities we need to do, uh, we can only fit so much in our glass. Uh, at work, there's meetings, clients, emails, at home, it's nappies, volunteering, it's, it's you know, taking kids to soccer, it's, it's watching Netflix, whatever you feel like you want to do, it's holidays. Um, but the bottom line is what our experience is you know, meeting people day by day is that everyone feels more and more like their glass is overflowing and that is the new normal, that there's more to get done than they can possibly do each day. And in the past you used to be able to plan and get organised and really, really be organised as a person and your glass wouldn't just overflow, you could contain it all. But in the digital age, what I'm experiencing is that it's impossible for many of us, at least, to actually fit everything we want to fit in into this glass. And so we need to make decisions about what flows out. We need to make decisions about what stays in. And most of us just feel busy all the time, which is what this talk is about. Um, so in our culture, the world is speeding up. And research says, I mentioned this before, that almost all of us feel rushed and pressed for time almost all of the time. And the research says more than 70% of people say they almost always feel rushed and pressed for time. And we need more space. Uh, we feel like our glass is overflowing and we need to find a different way. Um, so that's, you know, this, if this is the new normal, it's, it's true of our life day by day. It's true of our work. Uh, it's true of our families, and it's also true of our apprenticeship with Jesus, which is what I want to talk to you about today. So it's hard to not only make space for ourselves, but it's hard to make space for our soul. It's easy to be busy, but it's hard to be still. It's hard to carve out space to rest and think, to pray, to be, especially when we're doing this all the time. You know, it's hard to be still and know that I am God. Beautiful passage that means so much to us. It's hard to give attention to the, the quiet whisper, the still small voice of God so that we can feel connected to our maker. So 
I mean, I share this, and obviously I share this in, in work life, but I, I want to share it because it's not just an analogy. For me, it's actually a very personal thing for me. You know, I've wrestled with what it means to be someone who is passionate about work and passionate about uh, a vision and, and passionate about doing things, and yet at the same time to, have a, to be a person who can sit and rest, nourish my soul, and simply be. And... Um, so look, a number of years ago, I was working as a physiotherapist. That was my previous career. And I was in a busy management role. So I had uh, 17 different health sites that I was managing, 40 staff, um, had multiple projects. And it was complex. And at the same time as having all this stuff in my life as a, as a manager, I was also heavily involved volunteering in our church, which was third place communities at the time. And it was a time when there was a real churn and a change in leadership and a transition, and so that was busy as well. Um, add on top of that, you know, Tim and I had this hobby thing going on, which was about helping managers improve their email, but that hobby was getting busier and busier and more people wanted that training, and that ended up ramping up to become a business. Uh, I had a family, uh, had two young kids at the time, you know, a little baby, Caleb was a baby at the time, I was a husband, and, and just life was busy and cluttered and complex and I needed space. So I remember, I remember on the outside, I actually looked pretty good, like I was in my early 30s, had a great career, I was going up the ladder, had family, I had church, you know, everything looked good on the outside, but on the inside I was actually really wrestling. Um, it connects with the Pippi story, I think it connects with many of our stories, that there's an internal life that doesn't always match our external life and I was really struggling. Uh, I felt drained and empty, I wasn't sleeping very well, I felt stressed and busy in my head almost all the time. And the thing is, I've never really considered myself to be a very worried person, and I certainly haven't considered myself to be anxious. I mean, I've heard of people who have anxiety, but I just assumed they were for people who worried lots. But, um, but I started to experience medical symptoms, and in particular, I started to struggle with my breathing at the time. Uh, and I was breathless um, when I had a meeting. I was breathless when I had a client. I, had, I was breathless when I came home at the dinner table. I found I was breathless when I was reading my kids' books at night. And it was quite disturbing and scary for me. Um, so in the end, you know, I went to the doctor, I went to a specialist, I had lung tests and heart tests. They did all these different medical tests and they all came up as healthy, which is great. But through, you know, through a process of elimination, uh, the doctor started to ask me less about my physical life and more about my lifestyle. And really, I started to get the idea that there was something about the way that I was living that was making me feel anxious. And in the end, that was what my breathing was. The diagnosis was that I was suffering from stress-induced anxiety and moving towards burnout, which was really scary. I um, have a drink. Works, doesn't it? I had a friend at the time, about a year before, he was a pastor of a church, a fairly large church, and he actually had very similar symptoms, but he started to have breathing problems and burnt out. He ended up leaving his position and ended up in hospital for a long period of time. He was on medication for at least a year and a half and never ever returned to his role and, and has always kind of had this change in his personality since. So I could see that happening to me and I thought, I don't want to go there. So it was a huge wake-up call. Um, and the interesting thing is I, I'd been a Christian for a 
for my, well, for, since I was 12, for a long, long time, all my adult life, I had a really vibrant faith. Uh, I knew the Bible back to front, you know, to a certain degree. degree. I'd read the Bible back to front, and um, I had actually, I actually just read it forward. But I'd read the Bible, and uh, I'd been to theological college. Um, I, so I knew a lot about Jesus, and I was worshipping Jesus with my heart. But the reality was I wasn't actually practicing his rest in my life. And it caught up with me. It was really interesting. You know, my yoke was not easy. My burden was not light, which is a teaching, a promise of Jesus. And there was no cadence. There was no rhythm. There was no Sabbath in my life. And my body basically said enough. So, um, you know, my story might be common to some people here. It might be uncommon to others. But, I mean, my doctor at the time was great. And, and he said to me, I, looked, I mean, I, I suppose he put it in perspective that the 30s for many of us is just really, really tough. And, and I certainly experienced it. You know, I've got young kids. I've got a busy career. We had a mortgage, lots of pressures around me, lots of expectations from society. So, I mean, I'm not getting down on myself, uh, not getting down on anyone who feels that way as well. But, um, but what I... I suppose I realized is that there was something about the way I understood faith and life that didn't connect and, and that wasn't helping me in an environment where our glass was always overflowing. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, look, as, as is the Christian way, um, what do Christians do when they end up in problems? We, we go back to the scriptures, we look at the life of Jesus, and we repent and that's the call of the Christian life to constantly die to ourselves and to rise again so I repented and the word repent means metanoia in the Greek which simply means to change one's mind so to repent is to change one's mind and so God did change my mind he opened up my eyes and showed me a different way of living so I found a mentor I looked at how Jesus lived the rhythms that he lived in his life um, I made some really big decisions, like I left physio altogether and gave away that permanent role, which was a big decision. Uh, I made a heap of small decisions, which I've been living out day by day ever since, to create rest in my life as a habit and as a pattern, uh, daily, weekly and annually, which is what this sermon series is about, how to create rhythms of rest in an age of anxiety. Um, so look, I still struggle with busyness. I'm not pretending that I've solved it all. If you, you guys know me, you know that I still have incredibly busy roles. I have a lot in my life and I still have this massive... I want to see just communities of faith and love transform our suburbs in Hobart. I just want to impact people's lives through our business. I want my family to be healthy. I mean, there's so many things I want in my life and I'm driven. So now that will always make me kind of wrestle with this reality. But at the same time, I don't feel burnt out. I'm not totally exhausted all the time. And there is a rhythm in my life that I'm learning, which God has been using to help me walk in his ways, not just worship him uh, as my God. Um, and my breathing's good. Praise God. I'm so thankful. Woo! He heals. So, um, you've heard my story. Uh, maybe some of my story connects with your story, but I like to just pause, have an introverted moment for a minute um, while I gather my thoughts. But look, do you have a love-hate relationship with work like I had? Um, or I have sometimes? You know, do you struggle with overwork like I still do sometimes? Uh, do you struggle with balance? Do you have rhythm and cadence in your life? What's relevant to you? Just, just pause for a moment. So, Brian Robinson has this great quote. He says, Overwork is this decade's cocaine. It's a problem without a name. 
But it's true. Um, look, rest, I've come to realise, it's, it's not just a physical issue. I always thought it was an issue of the f- just physical, but I actually think it's a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. It's a spiritual issue, the way we understand time, the way we understand rest, the way we understand work. And that's a challenge for us as Christians because we don't like to talk about the ethics and morality of time, but that's partly what I want to talk about today, the spirituality, the theology of time, how our time is related to our relationship with Jesus, how the way we view rest and work and the rhythms and patterns in our life affect our apprenticeship with Jesus, how they shape our identity, how they shape how we live and work and breathe. Um, you know, the reality is I think we kind of intuitively know this. I mean, no one wants to follow a Christian who is totally exhausted all the time when we're bitter, when we're tired. Hey, come to Jesus and you can be exhausted and on 25 rosters just like me. Woo! Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just not life-giving. So, I mean, I, there's a reality and a challenge to living the Christian life because Jesus expects stuff of us as we serve, but we need to be a community who have life and energy. And so the way we use our time demonstrates in real life the promises Jesus has put in our life. So I'm going to go back to Matthew 11, 28 to 30, which is the key verse I've been using for this whole sermon series. Come to me, all who are weary and uh, burdened, and I will give you rest, his promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this passage. It's the passage we've been exploring. We've been looking at this in the broader context of the series called The Rhythms of Rest, so how to rest in an age of anxiety. And so far we've looked at the person of Jesus from that passage and the practices of Jesus. So the the idea that um, we need to walk in the rhythms, the practices of Jesus if we're to enter his promise of rest, but we also need to worship and know the person of Jesus because he transforms us from the inside out and changes our endless desire to work to the point of exhaustion. So we've been looking at this Um, So I want to move, uh, we talked a lot about the person of Jesus at Easter, but I want to talk about the practices of Jesus today and over the next few sermons. And in particular, I want to focus on the weekly perspective. So we've looked at the annual practices of Jesus, what it means to order and book your holidays before you book your rest every year, to prioritise rest before work in your calendar when you look at it at a big perspective, just to make sure you have some great annual leave. But... um, We're going to look at the middle perspective, which is about the weekly pattern, the day of rest, the Sabbath rest, which is by far, I think, the most valuable rhythm of rest uh, that I see in my life and that I see in Scripture, Um, but it's also one of the hardest to live out in practice. So we're going to talk about Sabbath, the theology of Sabbath, the practices of Sabbath. So out of all the practices um, and disciplines of Jesus, I actually believe, I've come to believe that Sabbath is one of the most important spiritual practices for us as Christians in the West. But it's also one of the hardest for us to master. It's very much misunderstood. It's very difficult to do in an individualised consumer world that always goes um, and goes and goes. And it's very, very countercultural. 
And so I want to spend a bit of time speaking about it. I heard a guy in the States, I listened to a sermon on Sabbath just the other day, and he said he's spoken about sexuality, on tithing, on money, on the environment, all these kind of potentially hot topics. But he said that no one has, he has never had more people leave his church than when he spoke on Sabbath. <laughs> so please don't do that right now. <laughs> But it, it goes to show that there's something about, and this is an American context, but the American-Australian culture is very similar in this way. There's something about a day of rest that goes against everything our world believes and all of our cultural narratives about achievement and identity and individualism and consumerism and belonging. So I want to talk about Sabbath because it is Jesus' way of healing us and giving us rest. Uh, so we're going to talk about, over the next few sermons, what is Sabbath? Why do we need it? What does the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures say about Sabbath? How do we design a Sabbath? So I want to get very, very practical. How do we actually tackle roadblocks to designing and implementing Sabbath in our everyday lives as individuals, as families, as extroverts, as introverts, as people who love activity, people who love rest? We're going to talk about the very practical nature of what it means to rest in God one day a week. And my heart and my hope is that we might be inspired to experiment and to practice Sabbath in our own lives a day a week so that we might enter God's rest, the promise of rest for our soul. So for those who are unfamiliar with this word Sabbath, let me explain it. Firstly, it is an ancient Jewish and Christian practice. It's a weekly day of rest Uh, It's more than a day off. So it's not just a day off, it's not just a weekend. It's a fenced-off, intentional period of time based on the fourth commandment of God where work is discontinued and rest is ritualized. It's a holy and separate day, a 24-hour period of time each week where we rest and we remember or we rest and we worship. It's about community, it's it's about transformation, it's about soul nourishment which is quite different than our current modern Western idea of a day off, where we just do jobs which that we can't do during the week or entertain ourselves. It's a very different concept. It's one where we exit the weekend, we exit our Sabbath with great joy and nourishment and healing and wholeness, which is quite a different idea. Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who writes beautiful stuff on the Sabbath, he's a Jewish rabbi, and and, uh, in his groundbreaking book, The Sabbath, it's a little book, it's a beautiful book, he writes this. Six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in our soul. The world has our hands but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week we seek to dominate the world, but on the seventh day we try to dominate the self. That's beautiful. Six days a week we dominate the world, on the seventh something happens in us where we master who we are ourselves. Um, So the Sabbath is a gift from God and it's a way in which we prioritise rest and remembrance one day a week as individuals and as a community. So, is Sabbath um, just a good idea for us as apprentices of Jesus? Well, no, it's, it's, it's God's idea. Okay, so I'm going to look at the Older Testament today. Uh, the Hebrew word for Sabbath, does anyone know what that is? Shabbat, that's right. 
Very simple. You can remember Hebrew if it's so similar. So it's Shabbat. And uh, it's mentioned 172 times in the scripture, in the library of scripture. So, and not only that, is it, not only is it mentioned lots, but Shabbat is mentioned at key points in the history of the scriptures. Uh, key moments in the biblical narrative which makes it really important. Um, and not only is it mentioned in the Old Testament, it's mentioned in the New Testament 60 times, which basically makes it a major theme, not a minor theme in the Scriptures. So as followers of Jesus, we need to know about what it means to Shabbat. So theologian Walter Brueggemann, he says, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. And that has certainly been my experience. Uh, it's actually not about the day of Shabbat. It's about the change that happens in every other day of the week when you pause and rest and nourish your soul for that one day a week. It changes how you think. It changes how you live. It changes how you experience faith and life and community every other day of the week when we pause and live in that one day of rest. So let's look at the Older Testament. Let's look at the first part of the Library of Scriptures and we're going to go right back to the very, very, very beginning, the very first book of the Scriptures called Genesis, which means origin. And I'm actually going to go through a Scripture I unpacked a few weeks ago, but I'm going to look at it from a slightly different angle. Um, so, Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3. Um, so it's, it's the start of the Genesis account of why we exist in this world. Okay, it's a poem and, and we find out that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, for, he works for six days. Whenever he spoke, he created. Okay, so he made the sun and the moon. He made the sky and the earth. He made fish and animals. He made men and women and he said that they were good. Okay, it's a beautiful account of how wonderful the world is in God's eyes. And then we hit this scripture here. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so the creation over six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. He rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested, there it is again, from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, I talked about this in terms of the order and pattern a few weeks ago, but today I want to talk about these two words, rest and holiness, and the connection between them. So what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for rest is Shabbat, which means to observe the Sabbath, to rest, to stop, to bring to an end, to be still. This is amazing. It's the only creation story in the Near East. It's, it's the only ancient creation story that puts rest anywhere in the story of how, who God is and how he created the world. So by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he Shabbat from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it he Shabbat from the work of creating that he had done. So the word Shabbat, it literally means to stop. To stop working, to stop wanting more, to stop worrying. No more work, no more want, no more worry just stop. It is to acknowledge the consumer compulsion in our human heart and to counter this by saying enough. Enough production, enough consumption, enough buying and spending, enough productivity, enough activity. Enough. Stop. Shabbat. 
So right at the beginning of the creation account of how God sees and made the world, how he made us, he put in a handbrake, which I think is just amazing. He knew us as humans. He knew that we would have a tendency to produce and to work and to work and to work and to work until we drop dead. And as a result of that, he spoke into the human desire and he commanded us to simply pause and make space and breathe. Which is beautiful. It's what our culture desires so strongly. I have a business because people pay me to help them make space. <laughs> if only we stopped and Shabbat. <laughs> it's wonderful. So, look, there's another important word in this. Um, and the other important word is holy. I won't read the Hebrew, but, but holiness is about separation. It's about the divine. It's about being set apart and dedicated to God. Now, the interesting thing is not only is Shabbat mentioned for the first time in Genesis, the word holy is mentioned here for the first time in the account of Genesis 2. And holy and Shabbat, they go together. So the Shabbat is sacred because God is holy. And God's holiness gives meaning to Shabbat. So they complement each other, they give one another meaning. So the Shabbat is to stop and rest and say, enough. And to be holy is to be separate and to be set apart. So when we observe Sabbath, we separate time and space for God. We observe a moment of time to rest and worship. We look up and we say, enough. Do you follow? It's a connection, separation and holiness and rest. The interesting thing is, in nothing else in the Genesis account is holy. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, I made the earth, it's holy. I made animals and plants and the environment, it's holy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say that humans are holy. What does he say is holy? Shabbat. He actually doesn't create a holy place. He creates holy time. This is an entirely different idea that we've lost. He didn't create sacred spaces. He created sacred periods or moments of time, which links in, for those who know about Jesus' call, to Kairos, sacred moments in time where the kingdom of God comes. He has always created sacred places in time separated from the rest of life. And he says, we can meet God in these spaces. So again, Abraham Heschel says that some religions build great cathedrals or temples, <laughs> including our own, right? So every religion creates sacred space, every single one. You will not find a religion that does not create a sacred temple or space or building and say this is holy, a sacred tree, sacred mountain, a sacred space. But the Judaic Christian God is the only one who constructs Sabbath in the architecture of time. So Abraham Heschel says some religions build great cathedrals, sorry, but Judaism constructs the Sabbath as an architecture of time. So basically, Sabbath is our great cathedral. <laughs> it is wonderful. Um, and we experience God's presence in holy moments, not holy places, and we carve them out and separate them, which is really quite a beautiful idea, don't you think? All right, so to summarize this scripture, Sabbath is found in creation in the design of the world. It's holy and set apart. Time, not space, is sacred. Sabbath is central to what it means to be human and Sabbath instructs us to prioritise time to stop and pause and say enough. Basically, I just want to say that Sabbath is important. <laughs> 
So then we move forward, okay? So I'm, I'm just going to dive through a few scriptures. We're nearly done. So the, the Exodus is the next major account of Sabbath in the scriptures. So we start with creation. The next really important narrative is when God, through Moses, gives the people of Israel the law which actually binds them and shapes them as a people. And again, Shabbat is central to that scripture. So God called a man called Abraham, and he promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham, and that Abraham would have many, many children, many descendants, and that those descendants would become Israel and be a blessing to the nations. Okay, This is the start of the Old Testament story in scripture. And so this happened. Abraham had a son called Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons had a whole nation of people called Israel. And then they ended up in Egypt under slavery, enslaved by a foreign ruler called Pharaoh, who basically put them um, and made them work hard every day, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, no rest, no stopping. Uh, they had a subsistence living. They knew slavery, they knew work, and they knew overwork. And that is the, the story of um, the Exodus. And then God comes in and calls a man called Moses and takes the people of Israel outside of Egypt through a bunch of miracles. You know, they walk through the Red Sea and they end up in uh, a desert for 40 years wandering. And, and here's the thing. They're lost. They have no map. They're used to being slaves. They don't know what it means to be free. And they have no laws. They have no borders. They have no constitution. Uh, and so uh, they, they're trying to work out what it means to be a free nation before they enter the land that God promises them, which is actually Israel as it is today. So they're in this liminal space in the desert, halfway between slavery and freedom, and they don't know how to be a people. And this is why it's such a central narrative that God gives Israel ten commandments, ten commands to show them what it means to be a godly people, to show them what it means to be truly free, so that they can not only be free as a people, but then enter into a freedom in the new land. And so um, I just want to go through these because right at the center of God's ten commandments is... Shabbat. Here we go again. So I'll go through these relatively quickly. So you, um, God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God and brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no uh, idols. So do not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below, etc., etc. Um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And then number four, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day a Sabbath is for the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you or your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's the account of Genesis again. And then we keep going. So honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Then it goes and continues. You know, you shall not murder. I mean, I always think it's a bit ironic that, you know, honor your father and mother 
and do not murder them. I think that's quite good, you know, just in case you're not sure, be good to your parents and don't kill them and don't kill anyone else. Um, then you should not commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, you should not give false testimony against your neighbour and you shouldn't covet, which means desire uh, the possessions of another person's house. You shall not covet their wife, their male or female servant, their ox, their donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. So that's the Ten Commandments and obviously, look, there's a lot in that but I want to talk about the logic of the commandments and how it relates to this command, this fourth commandment, Shabbat. Because the logic is amazing. So theologically, the first three commands of the Ten Commandments are vertical laws. They're about us and God, Yahweh. Okay, so the first one, love the Lord your God, love God alone. Okay, love God and God alone is the first command because God knows it will never rest, will never be complete as a nation if we don't love God. The second one is avoid idols, which is basically love God and God alone. And the third one is don't use God's name in vain, which is love God and love God alone. So it's, it's all about this, right? So three vertical commands. And then we go to um, the next few commands. Where am I here? Uh, yeah, so the next ones are horizontal laws. The command number five to number ten are about people. They're about loving people, loving one another, doing to others as you would do to yourself, uh, being a godly community. So you know, honour your parents. Don't kill people. Um, don't steal stuff. Don't assassinate a person's character. Don't desire their belongings. It's all about our relationship sideways with people. Okay, so the first three are about loving God. The last six are about loving one another. And then in the middle at number four, there's this pivot commandment which is really, really interesting. It's the commandment to rest. It's the commandment to Sabbath. So Sabbath is a pivotal command because it holds the vertical with the horizontal in a wonderful way. Um, it's a very intentional relationship between God and people held together in this day of rest. So in the words of, again, Abraham Heschel, he says that there are two aspects of the Sabbath as there are two aspects of the world. That the Sabbath is meaningful to man and is meaningful to God. So firstly, it's vertical. It's about faith and trust. It's, it's, um, it takes enormous faith to take a day out once a week for rest and remembrance. It is incredibly inconvenient <laughs> to have a day off to rest, uh, especially when we are overflowing with busyness. You know, we want to earn, we want to spend, we want to tick off more things from our list, we want to do renos, we want to earn more money, we want to just do stuff. And God says, no, I want you to actually carve out a holy spot in time and rest. That requires enormous faith, particularly in our culture, don't you think? It's, a, it's an aspect of trust. I think it's probably why you know, that poor American pastor lost loss of his congregation. So when we, I mean, for many of us, when, when we ask the question about the logic of Sabbath, we say, look, if I stop, I'll just be more busy. Like, if my glass is overflowing and I can't keep up anyway and I'm stressed and anxious, if I stop for a day of week, that'll just get a day worse. Like, that's how we think, but it's, it's actually human logic and if we're going to stop and pause for a day a week, we actually need faith and trust that when we're stopping, 
God is working on our behalf, that there is something supernatural about stopping for a day and living in his command, which tips something in, like it, it does something, and, and it not only transforms our heart, but God will work on our behalf in quite an amazing and miraculous way. And it's an entirely different logic to the world. You can see that, right? Um, and so therefore, it's an up relationship. So when we stop and Sabbath, we trust God with our time. It's about faith. It's about worshipping God. We give him the first fruit of our time and we make him Lord of our time. So in that way, it's a supernatural practice. Yeah? But not only, obviously, is it a, um, a vertical relationship, Sabbath pivots because it's about us and ourselves. It's about us and others. It's a horizontal command. It's about health and healing and wholeness for humans. So when we rest, we strengthen our health, we fill our souls, we connect with others, we build relationship, we build community. So you can see how that works in that way. So right at the beginning, we find that, in the, again, in Heschel's words, that the Sabbath is meaningful to man and is meaningful to God. And by, by connecting the Ten Commandments together, we somehow enter into Jesus' rest, into God's rest. It's beautiful. I think it's just beautiful. So look, I've just given you a ton of information and there are so many stories in the Older Testament that I would love to unpack. Stories about how God provides as we stop and trust in him in an age of busyness. But, but we've seen the creation story and we've seen the giving of the law, two central commands. We'll look at the New Testament and how to actually apply it next time we meet. But I would love to just pause now and help you reflect on what you might do with all this information in the next week. So where do you start? Where do we start? Over the next week, we start by talking about these ideas. We talk about Sabbath. I haven't given you practical advice about how to start, but I think it, it requires such a transformation in our value set. It requires such a deep commitment that we are called to Sabbath and there is a value to Sabbath and that God blesses Sabbath, that if we're going to change from our constant busyness to actually pause for 24 hours, we need to somehow allow these ideas to brew deeply in our soul. Yeah? So I'd love for you just to talk about it with another person this week. Um, have a coffee. Talk about Sabbath. Talk about these ideas. Um, maybe read some of the scriptures again yourself and look at them with your own eyes. Ask Jesus to reveal them to you. So I've um, put a sheet of paper on every second seat. So just there should be enough for most people. And I would love you to look at these four questions over the next week. Is Sabbath already a part of your life or is it a new idea to you? Did you grow up with any bias against the Sabbath? You know, it might be your upbringing, your theology, um, might be that you've had a really legalistic experience of Sabbath and that has turned you off of actually looking at this with eyes of freedom. Does the idea of practicing Sabbath sound good or bad or legalistic, freeing? And, um, and how open are you to the idea of practicing Sabbath in your own life? And, and very practically, I won't get you to answer those ideas now, but I would like you to answer these questions now, which are the next ones on your sheet under meet and talk. Who will you talk to this week? When will you meet? 
So what day and time and um, where will you meet? Who will pay for the coffee? That might be the most important question. Uh, so I'd just love you to pause. If you've got a piece of paper or a pen, I'd actually really like you to think, if, you, know, you don't have to do this, this is an invitation of course, but, but if you think you'd like to start this journey and go on this journey with me over the next few weeks to explore what it means to both, from a values and theological point of view, want to do Sabbath, but then how do you practically map it out and live it out in such a complex, busy world, then let's start by talking with one another. So look, have a moment. Who will you talk to? When will you meet? Where will you meet? I'd love you to write something down. All right. So we're going to head into communion, as we always do at the end of a sermon. And communion is a time where we get to remember the broken body of Jesus, the, the blood of Jesus shed for us, and we, where we get to do a heart response between us and God, but it's also between us and with each other because we do it together. It's, it's another one of those beautiful moments where we have the vertical uh, sacrament, but we're also doing it together as a collective community. But I want to finish by talking about one last story about Sabbath, and it's another key story, uh, and it helps me explain why I believe that Sabbath will work for us. And it's from Exodus 16. So Israel, they were wandering in the desert. Okay, so the people of God were wandering around in the desert. They were lost. They knew slavery, but now they had this freedom, but they were terrified and they were alone and they didn't know what to do with it. And they started grumbling, they started complaining, and they wanted meat, they wanted bread, and they said, Oh, Moses, you've taken us out of this wonderful land of Egypt where we had bread and where we had meat. They just forgot about the slavery bit, you know, and they said, They want that back again. And I mean, look, we need food. So, um, so Moses said, Trust in the Lord your God, he will provide. And, and so God did provide a bunch of quail, so birds came and, and landed and they ate the quail and that provided them with meat. And then um, they woke up and when the dew disappeared from the desert floor, they, they saw this white flaky stuff on the ground and they looked at it and they said, I haven't seen this before. And Moses said that this is the promise that you've been asking for. This is your bread. And um, they looked at it and they said, what is it? And the word for what is it in Hebrew is manna. So they called it manna, which is, what the heck is this stuff? <laughs> but when they put it together, they realized that it tasted pretty good. It says in the scriptures it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. I reckon that sounds pretty good to me. So they made bread out of this manna, which is what is it? So they had meat and they had bread. And then God said, every day... I will provide manna from heaven for you. Very similar. Jesus said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. God provided manna for the people of Israel when they needed it most. But there was one condition. Do you know what the condition was? Yeah. You can collect it for six days a week. On the seventh day, you rest. And you can collect twice as much manna on the sixth day and it won't go off so that you can have a holy day, a Shabbat, set aside in time to rest. And guess what the people of Israel did? The very first week, 
they went out on day seven to collect more manna because they were so used to activity and achievement and work and doing stuff and collecting stuff that they just didn't know how to actually enjoy the blessing and the gift of God's rest. And they went out to collect manna and it wasn't there. And Moses got really annoyed and God got annoyed. But how beautiful is that? Because you imagine every week it wasn't a... It wasn't voluntary anymore. God gave them manna six days a week. And on seven, day seven, it just wasn't there. And so he trained an entire nation of people who were slaves and only knew activity and overwork and exhaustion. He trained them to Sabbath every week to trust that there would be bread provided from heaven six days a week. They collected twice as much on Saturday on Friday and then on Saturday, which was their Sabbath, they rested. And he broke the slavery out of the people of Israel. He taught them to be free people who were free from the slavery of Egypt. And I feel like we need to be taught again. I heard a theologian once say that um, we say that the Jewish nation have kept Sabbath for thousands of years. But in many ways, that's not true the Sabbath has kept the Jews. They're the only nation who have been displaced, have had no land for like hundreds and hundreds of years. No land, no nationhood, and yet they maintain their identity. And the only thing that kept them there was Shabbat. Sabbath keeps us as a people. It regenerates us, it restores us, it makes us whole. Sabbath is our gift, it's the quail, it's the manna, and it's God's love. It's, it's an invitation. And I will talk in the New Testament, I will talk next week about how Jesus is our Sabbath and how there is freedom in Sabbath and how Sabbath has changed for us as apprentices of Jesus. But the heartbeat is still there. It is a gift. It is, it is something that God blesses us with so that we can live free and not as slaves. And it re relates to this promise Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find Shabbat for your souls. That is his promise, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he... He doesn't command us. He doesn't say, you shall Sabbath anymore, but he invites us. It's a gift. And he says, I invite you to come to me and know rest and peace and wholeness and joy. I invite you to go on a journey and set aside time every week and enter my rhythms of rest to enter my Shabbat. It's counterintuitive. It is countercultural and it is absolutely wonderful when we can learn to stop worrying, stop wanting, and stop working as a people. It keeps us close to the Father and it keeps us close to one another. When Jesus was put on a cross, um, and I know this has been shared many times before, but there were two beams. There was the vertical, there was the horizontal. And, uh, and Jesus is our true Shabbat. He is the one who, when he was broken, uh, he became the bread of life. He became our manna, 
who transformed us. He connected us with God and he connected us with each other. So as we have communion, we do what our followers of Jesus have done for a long, long time. We remember and observe that he is our rest. And as we come to him, we can know the beauty of his promises. And we praise you, Jesus, for your Shabbat, and I pray that you will give us our daily bread today. Um, we thank you for your love and for your grace, and I pray we will walk out of today feeling refreshed uh, and invited in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.